When we were last together, we had focused two Sundays on the first verse, John's rapture into heaven. And I talked about how this, this typified, uh, John's rapture typified um, the rapture of the church at a specific place in the book where the rapture will occur. That's at the end of the church age. At the end of the things which are comes the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter what? The things which are. And so John's own rapture at this very spot is where the rapture occurs in God's plan and purpose for history. And so I spent two Sundays giving, building a biblical case for a pre-tribulational rapture. If you want to go back and look, listen to those sermons, they are both up now. And it's funny, I posted both sermons last week, or I posted the second one last week and the first one uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, and I received a comment on my website. I don't, know, I don't know who it was, but it just gave a first name, but he literally blasted me out of the water and accused me in preaching about the rapture to be following a Jesuit myth. And so I don't know where that comes from. It's Catholicism that created post-millennial theology, not pre-millennial theology. So people get so worked up about that. And I just uh, gave it the best response that it could have received, which was nothing, delete, block. Don't have time for that. But I find it funny how people come up with these things. I don't know where it comes from. And they want to throw out any notion that what is spoken of here is literal and that God has a plan and purpose both for the church and for Israel. I was very disappointed this week because there's a man who's been very bold and has preached some very solid things when it comes to the family and the relationships of, of men and women in the family and the role of children and, and the idea that children should be involved in the church and shouldn't be segregated into some classrooms and stuff. A, a preacher by the name of Vody Balkum. I was very disappointed to see some things that he had said this week in which he basically mocked the idea that um, there is a literal millennial kingdom of Christ on this earth. And he disdained a literal interpretation of Revelation 19 and 20. And when I saw his exegesis of those passages, it astounded me. I don't know how if a man handles Scripture that way in one place, he can be trusted to handle it faithfully anywhere else. It very much disappointed me because this man has been known to preach some pretty solid stuff when it comes to the family. And I think people have a reactionary theology. They look at people that hold certain doctrines or traditionally and they see that these folks aren't living the way they should be as Christians and then they want to throw the doctrine out the window. And a lot of times, friends, the doctrine is correct. It's just not being applied properly. So we have to be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater per se. Um, there are people who are not living in obedience to the Lord who hold elements of sound doctrine. We need to have both doctrine and application. We need to live what we believe. And unfortunately, there's always been Christians who claim to believe what's right, but they don't live it. And therefore, they only come in halfway. If we truly believe these things, we're going to live it. If you truly believe that Christ is coming for His church soon, then you'd be out sharing the gospel. You'd be, out, you'd be ready. You wouldn't be like the virgins who had not trimmed their wicks and weren't ready for the Messiah to come. But that stuff disappoints me, and I think it, it's rooted in a lack of understanding. 
Uh, he had made reference to some passages in Ezekiel and how he refused to believe that there would be a temple on earth after Christ comes and there would actually be sacrifices going on, that that was blasphemous, that Revelation 20 must be happening in heaven when it says very clearly it's on earth. And so people just fail to understand. And when you don't understand Scripture in its context and understand what's happening in Ezekiel, then I guess you can come to those periods of frustration. But we have to be very careful. There's no reason to interpret these things any different than the plain sense in which they are given to us, the common man. God didn't write the Scriptures for the scribes and the magi to interpret for us lowly peons. He wrote the Scriptures for the common man. And He gives the Holy Spirit even to the poorest of men that call upon Him. So that even the poorest and most unlearned of men, just like the disciples of Jesus Christ, can have more knowledge than their teachers. You know, that's what caused the religious leaders in Jerusalem to marvel that the disciples who were bold at Pentecost were unlearned and ignorant men. So the Scriptures were given for you and we can understand them in their plain sense context. Um, and I'm not saying these things about uh, this pastor to tell you you should never listen to him or he's got some really good stuff on the family, but hey, I'm just disappointed. I think people need to think before they speak. And uh, he definitely did not think before he spoke in those contexts. And uh, I pray that, I, I know I've done that many times, so we just need to be careful. But let's go to chapter 4. We've, John has been called up into heaven with the voice of the trumpet, come up hither. That's the commandment that will be given to the church. Come up hither. Jesus said, go ye therefore, but the day's coming when He'll say, come up hither. And so John is a type of the rapture. The Scripture's full of typology. Let's look at verse 2. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and I beheld a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Okay? So here, verse 1, we have the rapture of the church at a specific point in time. And what we'll have the rest of this chapter, beginning with verse 2, up until the end of chapter 5, we have a scene that takes place in heaven. And I believe this is during an interval of unknown duration between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation is that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, when the Antichrist will sign, it begins when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. This is very clearly laid out in Daniel 9.27. In the middle of that week or seven-year period, Antichrist will break that treaty. He will set himself up, with God, up as God and Israel will be persecuted in a way they've never seen. The time of Jacob's trouble. I believe this scene in heaven from 4.2 on through the end of chapter 5 happens during a period of unknown duration between the rapture and the tribulation. I don't believe the rapture signifies the beginning of the tribulation. I believe there's an unknown duration of time. The tribulation begins when Jesus Christ, the earth's kinsman redeemer, starts to open the scrolls. And that happens, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. The first scroll is the coming of Antichrist who comes in by peace and not by war. And we'll get to that at a later point. But we are in heaven now, prophetically in a period of time between the rapture 
and the tribulation period. John is transported in the Spirit. He didn't physically go to heaven. He was in the Spirit. This was some sort of vision very similar to what Paul had and spoke about in the letters to the Corinthians. Um, we have this heavenly throne described in verses 2 through 3 and in verse 5. We also have 24 elders we're going to talk about, four beasts, and we have some heavenly worship. So that's what I want to speak about today. Revelation 4, 2, and 3, what we see here is God upon His throne. Very simple. God upon His throne. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. Because I believe that the prophet Ezekiel during the captivity, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, I believe Ezekiel saw the exact same thing that John is seeing here. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. This was in the fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity. We see here, and above the firmament, Ezekiel was down by the river and had this vision. The hand of the Lord was upon him, it would say, when he had these visions. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw the color of amber and the, as the appearance of fire round about within it from the appearance of his loins even upward and the appearance of his loins even downward. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and heard the voice of one that spake. So Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord God. On a throne, God had the appearance of a man. Man was made in the image of God. So that should be no surprise. This was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So we know it was God. Ezekiel mentions a rainbow, just like what is mentioned there in Revelation chapter 4. And it's interesting that Ezekiel's reaction is the same reaction that John had in Revelation chapter 1 when he stood before the glorified Christ. You know, we speak of God in modern day churchianity so flippantly. We speak of Him so flippantly. We, don't, we not only use His name flippantly, but we as Christians speak of Him as if, as if He's our homeboy next door. As if He's obligated to meet our needs. We speak of Christ with flippancy and without sincerity many, many times. And we have these images of God that look more like a sky fairy than what John and Ezekiel saw. What John and Ezekiel saw elicited a falling flat on their face and an inability to speak. A reverence that was, couldn't even be voiced in words. And yet we speak of God so flippantly. I think many speak of God and don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. Is that us? Do we flippantly use His name? Do we approach Him flippantly in prayer? Or do we approach Him with the awe and reverence, knowing that He truly is as He was seen here by His prophets? I think one great lesson when we see the comparison of John's throne 
with Ezekiel's throne. One great lesson we need to understand. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They are not any different. It's the same throne. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. So if you don't like what God has to say in the book of Leviticus, then you've got a problem with the God of the New Testament and you have a problem with Jesus the Christ. If you have a problem understanding the God of the Old Testament and understanding things in their proper context, as related to government in Israel, and you want to throw off all that Scripture and say, well, we serve a different God today, then you're deluded. You're misinformed. You're deceived. We are dealing with one and the same God. It says here in Revelation 4 that the throne that John beheld, someone was sitting in that throne, And it says that the one sitting there was like a jasper and a sardine stone. Now understand, John is using metaphoric language here. That is very obvious from the the, the word like. Like means a simile. So John is comparing what he sees to things he understands. And he talks about this as a jasper or a sardine stone. A jasper is a form of quartz. And the clear jasper is like glass. And it looks very much like a diamond. A sardine stone has a fiery red about it. Ezekiel talked about what he saw had the vision, had the, had the look of amber. It was a fiery appearance. And so what John saw was a fiery red, a sardine stone. Jasper, the brightness of a quartz, of a diamond-like stone. These were very evident in both visions. Now I find it interesting that the high priest in Israel wore an ephod that had a breastplate on it. And this breastplate had row, 12 stones organized in rows that stood for the tribes of Israel. The jasper and the sardine stone were the first, was the first and the twelfth stones on that breastplate. One stood for the tribe of Benjamin, the sardine stone, the youngest of the tribes, and one stood for the tribe of Reuben, the oldest of the sons, the jasper stone. And so what John saw looked like a sardine and a jasper, and the tribes of Israel, as represented on the high priest's ephod, were encouched between a jasper and a sardine. What I think this is emphasizing is that John is now seeing God in relation to Israel, his covenant people. John has seen God in chapter 1 in relation to the church. Jesus Christ, God in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Now, with the church in heaven, we're going to see there in heaven later on in chapter 5, John is seeing God in relation to the covenant people of Israel. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting because now as we proceed in the book, the church age is over. God is now going to start acting. He's going to fulfill the 70th week of Daniel. He's going to act to complete and bring uh, to fruition His promises for the nation of Israel and the return of Messiah. Now God is going to act going forward in relation to His covenant people as the church stands by and watches, rest and watches. 
Very interesting. I'm reminded of the disciples in Acts chapter 1. They asked Jesus a question after His resurrection. They said, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which God has put in His power, but I want you to go and be My witnesses. Well, the church has gone and been witnesses. The church age is over. Now, God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And that starts with the time of Jacob's trouble and his wrath poured out upon the world. So I think it's interesting that God's being emphasized in that fashion. Notice that there's a rainbow not over the throne, but round about the throne. The rainbow is a sign of God's covenant. We see that in Genesis with Noah. The rainbow, the bow was set in the cloud as a sign of God's covenant that He would never again destroy the earth by water. And God has kept that covenant. He's kept that covenant. Noah's flood could not have been a local flood or else God's a liar because there's been plenty of local floods that have destroyed Homes and towns and cities. and There's a place up in Pennsylvania where I think uh, some kind of flood or dam broke years ago and just wiped out a whole place. What was that, Jonestown or, or Johnstown or something like that? I may be wrong. I remember riding a bicycle across America and I saw a sign there that talked about it. But the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant and we see it here in heaven in the throne room with what I believe is the church standing by. And so what does that mean? Well, the storm, my friends, in that heavenly throne room for the church is over. The rainbow comes out when the storm is over. A sign of God's promises. God has fulfilled His promises to the church. He built His church and the gates of hell didn't prevail against it. And now that storm for the church is over. All our trials, cares, and tribulations are done because we've been taken to the bride's wedding chamber for a time. The storm for the church is over. When God gives Noah the rainbow in Genesis 9, it's a rainbow like we see it. What we see is a semi-circular rainbow. It's a half a circle. But what encompasses this throne, not only here, but in Ezekiel's throne, is a full circle. It's a circular rainbow. You see, here on earth, we only see the half of things. We only see the natural. If we're walking in the Spirit, we can glimpse into the spiritual. We can have understandings there. But in heaven, all things are known. It's not a half a circle. It's a full circle. The whole of things in heaven versus the half of things in earth. The things that John is going to go on to describe in this book are revealed to him from heaven. Without this revelation from God, we couldn't understand any of these things. For us to understand even the least a bit about God, He has to reveal Himself to us. And He's done that through the Holy Scriptures. Praise God for the nation of Israel because God used those people to give Scriptures to mankind so that we could have a glimpse of the whole of things. But in heaven, my friends, all the great mysteries will be revealed. All the intricacies and in, 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 uh fanciful uh, details of God's divine hand of providence will be answered. It won't be like a rainbow on earth. Just half a circle. It'll be like the rainbow around the throne. A full circle. I marvel at the divine hand of providence and I long for the day where we can know the mysteries of that, of that acting, of God's sovereignty. I have many questions to ask. 
many questions to ask. Kids, I have a question for you. How many colors are in a rainbow that you see here on earth? Five. Not quite. Purple. Do you, you guys remember the little, little uh, name you can use to help you remember the colors? Anybody ever heard of Roy G. Biv? A rainbow here on earth has red, listen, y'all learned something, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Roy G. Biv. Just remember that. A rainbow here on earth is composed of the seven primary colors. But this rainbow that John sees is like unto an emerald. An emerald has a greenish hue. When I think of the color green, I think of God as a covenant-keeping God of singular purpose. God isn't acting with various plans and purposes. He has a singular purpose. And we're going to see that later in chapter 4 in the very last verse of the chapter. There's a singular purpose to all things. God has a singular person, purpose, be it His actions toward the nation of Israel, his actions toward the church or His actions toward the earth, they all work together to promote a singular purpose. God's a covenant-keeping God. When God says something, He means business, whether it be to Israel, the church, or the wicked of the earth. And God does what He does to bring glory to Himself. And so we're not talking about a rainbow, multicolored rainbow. We're talking about a singular color that reminds me of God's singular purpose to be glorified in all that He does. Friends, if no person ever came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, despite Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the preaching of the apostles, God would still be glorified. If no one today in America, living today, ever gets saved, God would still be glorified. He does not need us. And we as the church need to wake up and realize that God doesn't need us. If we in America won't obey the Great Commission, if we in America won't be faithful, God will turn to a savage nation, a poor nation, a third world nation and raise up people to carry the gospel until His time with the church is done. Now we have mentioned here in talking about God's throne, the jasper, the sardine, and the emerald are all mentioned. I find it interesting that all three of these stones are listed as part of the New Jerusalem's foundations. Precious stones. We'll read that later in the book. When Satan, the anointed cherub that covereth, was in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, Satan was covered in all three of these gemstones. Remember, John says like similes. John is describing God's Shekinah glory in anthropomorphic terms, in man-made terms. The jasper, the sardine, the emerald like substances in heaven far transcend what we can find in the rocks here on the earth. This throne, you must remember, my friends, is not a throne of grace that John is seeing here. This is not the throne of grace. This is a throne of judgment. A throne of judgment. Look at verse 5. Let me skip, skip ahead for a minute. And out of the throne, what did John see? Proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Let's look at Exodus real quick, chapter 20, verse 18. Exodus 20, 18. This is what the people of Israel saw when God came down on Mount Sinai to give the law. 
And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood far off. This throne that John sees is a throne of judgment. And the lesson to be learned here is that even in God's judgment, even in the wrath that we're going to see, the wrath of the Lamb poured out upon the earth, God's covenants, God's promises are sure. And there is beauty even in His judgment. When Satan lies, steals, kills, and destroys, there's no beauty in that. When God pours out judgment, there's beauty. I think an example of that is the world, the geography, the topography of this planet as we see it today. In Revelation 17, when John is transported to see the image of that whore riding the beast, it says that this whore, John was taken into the wilderness to see this vision. I think that what we are living on today is a wilderness compared to the earth's topography before the flood. I think things radically changed and we're actually living in a wilderness that shows more of God's judicial power than His creative power to say. I think a lot of what we see in terms of the mountains and the canyons and stuff are the results of the flood. And so, yes, it's God's creation, but it's also His judgment. And some of those places that are most evident of that are eerily gorgeous and beautiful. Even God's judgment is beautiful. That's something that can't be said about man or Satan or the fallen angels. Even in God's judgment, His covenants are sure. God's going to pour out His wrath, but His church will endure and He will fulfill His promises to Israel. And what God does is beautiful. It's beautiful. Let's look at verse 4. We've got the throne in heaven. God on His throne. A throne of judgment. God with singular purpose, particularly in relation to the people of Israel. And then what did John see around the throne? The storm for the church is over, as indicated by the rainbow. And then it says, "...and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold." Now, the question here, who are these elders? What do they represent? I'm going to tell you right here off the bat, I believe that these elders are representatives of redeemed men of all ages. In other words, they represent the Old Testament saints and the New Testament church together. All of whom are actually in heaven at the time, when John, at the time that this vision actually comes to pass in human history. We'll see this in chapter nine, 5 verses 9 and 10. That, that the Old Testament saints in the church are in heaven. So these are representatives of the Old Testament saints who are the friends of the bridegroom and the New Testament church who is the bride of Christ. Now, what makes me think that? Well, first of all, if you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, 5-19, I'm not going to read that. David set up in the temple, there were 24 orders of priests who were to represent the whole priesthood 
before the Lord. So each order was divided according to family. So you had 24 courses who would serve one week each. And then these courses would repeat annually two times. During festivals, all of the priests would serve together because a whole lot of things would be going on in Jerusalem and around the temple. But all the priests couldn't come into the temple at once. I mean, there were a lot of priests. There were a lot of descendants from Aaron's line that were living. And so they were divided so that the work could be delegated. And so you had 24 orders of priests that represented the entire priesthood. Now what I find interesting is that it says in Luke 1 that Zacharias was of the course of Abijam, which was the eighth of these 24 courses. And each course would begin on the first day of the month of Nisan, which is the Jewish religious New Year. And each course would serve a week, and then the next course would come in. Well, between the first course and Zacharias's course, during that day, they would have had two festivals that required all of the priests. So Zacharias would have been serving either in the tenth week of that year when the angel came to him, or in the thirty-fourth week because you had those festivals that had taken place. It was Passover and uh, Shavuot, which is Pentecost. And so he would have either been serving in the tenth week of the religious year or the 34th week. We can't really know. If it was the 10th week, then based upon the fact nine minute months later, and then Jesus was born six months after John was born, if Zacharias was serving in the 10th week, then Jesus would have been conceived in the womb of Mary sometime around the 25th of December. If Zacharias was serving around Yom Kippur in the 34th week, which would have been the second time his course was serving, then Jesus would have been born around the time of December 25th. So those things are undeniable. And so when people start flapping off a bunch of stuff about how that date is completely related to the winter equinox and the worship of the sun god, they speak ignorance. Because the courses of the priest show us that either the conception or the birth took place around the end of the year. So we need to be careful about what we spew off. I know people have different convictions and things like that. But don't go because you have a conviction and force that on another brother who might believe a little bit differently about something that is biblically based. Just because the world has made a mockery out of December 25th and the birth of Christ doesn't mean we can't celebrate what the angels saw fit to celebrate. Anyway, that's just a side note. Um, so we have the 24 orders of priests. And then consider the New Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12, we are told that the 12 gates of this new city are for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in verse 14, the 12 foundations are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so in the New Jerusalem, we have the Old Testament saints represented and we have the New Testament church represented. The Old Testament saints, I believe, are the friends of the bridegroom. In John chapter 3, verse 9, John, who was the greatest of all prophets, Jesus said, talked about this. He said, He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So you have the friends of the bridegroom and the bride represented in the New Jerusalem. And then notice the title, the position, the dress, and the song, which is later in chapter 5, of these elders. I think they, all of this together tells us what they represent. Number one, it says that round about the throne, John, what did John see? What inanimate object did he see? Seats. That word there in the Greek is thronos. It's where we get the word throne. It's the same word. I love how the King James uses seats instead of throne though because it's differentiating these from the throne of God that's just been described. So there's wisdom in that. It's amazing, the English language sometimes. 24 seats. These are thrones. Now if you go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Daniel has a vision. And I believe this vision is a foreview of the judgment seat of Christ where the thrones are unoccupied. I believe the church is raptured at some point. At that point in heaven, we all stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. That's not the great white throne judgment where God pours out wrath. That's the judgment Paul speaks of concerning rewards. I believe that in heaven, after the rapture, we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And since God is not bound by time, and since things in His presence operate outside of time, that judgment seat of Christ for all believers of all ages could take place in an instant, I believe. But the thrones are unoccupied when Daniel sees this judgment. Daniel chapter 7. Just go there real quick. Daniel sees this vision. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. That word cast down means placed. These thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now who did John see that had hair like wool and a garment like snow? Jesus. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. A fiery stream. How are our works judged by what, according to Paul? By fire. Thousand, thousands ministered unto Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. I believe this is a foreview of the judgment seat of Christ for reward. And at this time in Daniel's vision, the thrones are unoccupied. They're placed, but they're unoccupied. When John sees things, the thrones are occupied. These elders are seated on the thrones. And so, I believe what John has seen is after the judgment seat of Christ. And the thrones have been placed, the rewards have been divvied out, and now these elders, these representatives, are seated. Rewards have passed the fiery test of judgment as revealed in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. You should also consider that in the Scriptures, only redeemed people are called elders. Only the redeemed are promised crowns and thrones of, right, or thrones of judgment. So these are not angelic beings sitting in these seats. Taken with Daniel's vision, 
unoccupied thrones, now they're occupied, taken with the description of the New Jerusalem and considering how 24 was representative of the whole priesthood in the Old Testament, it makes sense to me that 24 would be representative of the priesthood that is the Old Testament saint and the church in heaven. There's a lot of passages here. You can write some of these down if you want to go back and look. Matthew 19.28. Let's just read them. Uh, Jason, Matthew 19.28. Anthony, 1 Corinthians 6.3. Bob, Revelation 3.21. Nate, Revelation 24. Jim, Revelation 2.10. Ronnie, 2 Timothy 4.8. Daniel, 1 Peter 5, 2-4. And Daddy, I'll have you read 1 Corinthians 9.25. Consider who's being talked about when reference is made here to thrones and crowns. Matthew 19.28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that which hath followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Thrones are promised to redeemed men there. The apostles. 1 Corinthians 6.3 Know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? The church is promised the role of judgment, even judging angels. How is it then that we in the church take our matters to law and let unredeemed men judge even the smallest of matters. We should put the most humble and unimportant of men in the church in a position to judge matters spiritually because we're going to judge angels, redeemed men. Revelation 3.21 that will I bring it to sit with me in my throne, even if I also overcame and set down with my father To the redeemed who overcome. We know the overcomers according to John are those that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God are promised thrones. Not angels, but the redeemed. Revelation 24. I think that was you, senpai. <laughs> Revelation 20 verse 4. It's all right. And I saw the one that they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had the creatures marked upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ without the Here we have the tribulation saints, the fruits of the ministry of the 144,000 promised thrones and judgment and co-reigning with Christ during the millennium. Revelation 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Here we have the crown of life, promised to redeem men that endure and are faithful unto death. A crown promised not to angels, but to redeemed men. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that 
also that love his appearing. A crown of righteousness given to those redeemed men that look for the coming of Christ. Again, not to angels, but to redeemed men. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy decree, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but as being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. A crown of glory promised to redeemed men who faithfully shepherd the flock of God. 1 Corinthians 9.25 And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. An incorruptible crown for redeemed men who run the race. So we have these elders seated in thrones. Same thing that's promised to redeemed men. They have crowns, what is promised to redeemed men. We see 24 is representing the whole priesthood in the Old Testament. We see the apostles, 12 promised 12 thrones by Jesus. And then we see reference made to the tribes of Israel on the gates of the new city. It's pretty obvious to me that these 24 elders represent the redeemed of all ages. Look at what they are wearing. They are wearing white raiment. Clothed, they're seated clothed in white raiment. What is the white raiment according to the revelation uh, later on in the book? The righteousness of the saints. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, the message to the church at Sardis, Jesus said, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And then this is defined later in chapter 19 as being the righteousness of the saints. Those that come with Christ on horses at the Battle of Armageddon are wearing white raiment. The saints. And it's not just 24 that come with Christ. It's the whole body, as Enoch described in the book of Jude. I find it interesting because the word angel can refer to a human messenger in the Bible. Oftentimes the word angel is used in, its, in the context talking about a human messenger. It means a messenger. The heavenly angels are God's ministering spirits. I find it interesting at Jesus' resurrection, the way what greeted the women at the tomb is described. In Mark chapter 16, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, I'm sorry, but I just find it kind of interesting. Mark chapter 16, 15 says... Not 16.15. 16.5. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. So you have a man in white raiment. And then if you go to Acts, chapter 1, what was seen there when Jesus ascended? Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And they looked, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? And then Luke 24, verse 4. 
And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And so you have men in white garments. Well, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead, He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And when He resurrected, what was seen in the holy city by people for a time? Men out of the graves in their resurrected bodies. And so there were some that Jesus, the power of His resurrection, resurrected some who have their glorified bodies. I don't know who, what, how many. And I believe that is what these folks were seeing in the tomb and in Acts chapter 1, not angels. Now, in one of the other Gospels, they are spoken of as angels. And angels are messengers. And so there is no contradiction because an angel can be a human agent. And the Bible is very clear in its context when those things are being taught. So there is no contradiction. I believe what you saw there were redeemed men in white raiment who made these announcements. I don't know who they were, but we know that some of the redeemed received their resurrection bodies and walked around Jerusalem. The first fruits, Jesus and those saints, the harvest, the church, the gleanings, the tribulation saints. It's all part of that resurrection. And then, over in verse 9, we, we, we kind of skip ahead a little bit. We see that these elders, along with the beast in heaven, they have a song. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne and lived forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, verse 10, fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their thrones before the throne. And so when you consider the title, the position, the dress, the song of these elders, I think it's clear they represent the redeemed men of all ages. And then we'll see in chapter 5 that when they sing, they don't sing for only themselves, but for us, all of us. And what they sing is the message of the church. And I believe the church and the Old Testament saints are in heaven at that time. So we have the throne in heaven. I'm not going to get through this. The heavenly throne, we have the 24 elders, representatives of redeemed men of all ages, who at that time are in heaven. And then we have, in verses 6 through 8, the four beasts. But before we get to the four beasts, I want you to consider something in verse 5. We'll see later that the saints are in heaven, the church is in heaven. We'll see that in chapter 5, verse 9. But look at what also is in heaven in verse 5. We've seen the throne with lightnings and thunderings. And before the throne there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God we've already talked about is the Holy Spirit. He's sevenfold in His ministry. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in heaven before the throne. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians that Antichrist could not come until the restrainer be taken out of the way. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And at this point in time, He's in heaven. And the only way He can be in heaven and removed from the earth is, that, is if those He indwells permanently are also removed from the earth, which is the church. And we'll see that later in chapter 5, the church is there as well. An interesting side note. But the four beasts, um, 
who, and who or what are these things? Now, remember, we hear of beast here in chapter 4, and then we get later in Revelation and we talk about Antichrist is described as a beast. The beast out of the earth. The beast out of the sea. False prophet and the Antichrist. This word beast here in the original language is a different word in chapter 4 than the word used to describe the Antichrist and the false prophet. So this word beast here is a reference to living creatures, not to wild, untamed things. The Greek word used to describe the beast Antichrist out of the sea, the beast, the false prophet out of the earth, that's a word that means a wild, untamed thing. But these creatures that John sees in heaven are living creatures. And before the throne was a sea of glass like in the crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts. Not wild, untamed things like Antichrist, but living creatures full of eyes before and behind. So these are in contrast to the wild, untamed beast we see in Revelation 11, 13, and 17. These beasts are around the throne. They're full of eyes. That's kind of a weird thing to think about. Six wings. Each has a face. One has the face of a lion. One has the face of an ox. One has the face of a man. One has the face of an eagle. We see this here in verse 8. And what is their message? Their message is very much like the songs we sang this morning. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. God was... Eternity past, He is now, and He is to come, eternity future. He has no beginning, no end. And just because a finite atheist corrupted by sin cannot fathom that doesn't make it untrue. God has no beginning and no end. And a message perfectly sums up who God is. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Who or what, or what are these beasts? I do not believe these are angels. Because if you go to chapter 5 and verse 11, the angels are given a class of their own. John says he hears the voice of angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. So the beasts are something different than angels. What are they? Well, we go back again to the book of Ezekiel. We find out who these beasts are because Ezekiel identifies them. In chapter 1, you've got to kind of read the whole chapter, and I'm not going to do that. Ezekiel sees four beasts. These are living creatures. These beasts in Ezekiel's vision have four wings, and instead of one face, they have four faces. But each ba- the four faces include a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man, just like what John sees. They have calves' feet, And just like John's beast, they are full of eyes. They are seen below the throne of God that Ezekiel described, I read earlier. And they are seen as supporting that throne. And Ezekiel's beasts have wheels. He called it like a wheel within a wheel. And they were mobile. And they moved around. If you go over to Ezekiel 10, he then tells us what these beasts were. Chapter 10. So he describes them along with the throne of God. Notice the throne of God in Ezekiel 1 is is mobile. 
It's, in, it's, it's moving. It's in a mobile position. What John sees is a permanent position of God's throne. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15, he, claimed, he, he says, These are the living creatures that I saw by the river of Kebar. That was his vision in one. What he saw in chapter 1 is exactly what he sees in chapter 10. So there's the proof right there. And then in verse 20 through 22, This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river of Kebar. And I knew that they were the cherubims. Everyone had four faces apiece and everyone had four wings and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings and the likeness of their faces was the same faces same faces which I saw by the river Kebar, chapter 1. A lion, eagle, ox, and a man. Their appearances and they themselves, they went every one straight forward. These beasts are the cherubim. The cherubim. That's what John has seen before the throne. Not angels, but cherubim. Now it's interesting, Ezekiel's cherubim have wheels and they're accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And they're, quote-unquote, seem to be on a mission. And the mission is seen there as you read on in the book. So what you have is the mobility of God's throne. But in John's vision, you're in the permanent throne room of God. And so there's a sense of permanency. Ezekiel's beast had six wings. The one John saw only had four. Ezekiel's beast had four faces that could look in every direction. John's only have one. But the faces that John sees are the same faces that Ezekiel saw. A man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. So why are they different? Well, the differences could show us that these amazing spiritual beings are shapeshifters. They can change their shape to uh, support their purpose. Or it could show us that there's an order of the cherubim. Each is adapted specifically to the service they are created to perform. I believe these living creatures are the cherubim. The cherubim are what Ezekiel saw. A cherubim or a cherubim is what stood before the Garden of Eden to guard it. What are these cherubim in Scripture? Well, they appear to be guardians of the throne and holiness of God. Their presence seems to emphasize the vindication of God's holiness against the presumptuous pride of men. They emphasize the authority of God's holiness to render judgment. In that sense, they're different from what Isaiah saw in chapter 6, the seraphim. Let me just finish this real quick. Genesis chapter 3 talks about a cherubim. Genesis chapter 3, 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. This is after Adam and Eve took the fruit and sinned. To know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. If, if, if man were to take that fruit and eat and live at the tree of life, he would live forever in his sinful state. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. 
I believe these cherubims were like, very much like the beast that are described here in Revelation 4. They vindicate the holiness of God in the presence of prideful, sinful men. They declare the authority of God's holiness to judge sin. Yes, yes, that's right. I'm going to get to that. That is exactly what was put on the ark of the covenant. Not angels, but cherubim. Cherubims were stationed to garden Eden. I believe that Eden, after man was evicted, I believe there was a tabernacle or a place of worship of some sort there with the cherubims where Cain and Abel brought their offerings. I believe there was a place where they brought their offerings that was guarded by the cherubim. Just like the Ark of the Covenant where the priest met with the Shekinah glory of God was guarded by the cherubim, the wings of the golden cherubim. I believe there was a place there. And it's interesting how in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain is judged... Sorry, I just lost my place. In verse 16, what does it say? And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. So Cain left the presence of the Lord. There was some sort of tabernacle, some sort of place that was guarded by the cherubim, that stood guard between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. These cherubim were also the guardians guardians of the mercy seat and the Shekinah glory of God as it appeared on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25 describes how these golden cherubim and their wings outstretched were constructed and put on the Ark. They were to cover the mercy seat and the glory, the Shekinah glory of God would appear between the cherubims on the Ark of the covenant. In the tabernacle, the curtains were engraved with images of cherubims, these beasts. In Solomon's temple, two giant cherubim were carved and covered with gold to guard the oracle or the holy of holies. These cherubim were 15 feet high and their wingspan was 15 feet wide. The walls and the doors of Solomon's temple were carved with cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Very interesting, these cherubim guard the throne of God. They vindicate His holiness. Look at, if we look at the camp of Israel, we see a picture of this. Everything that God gave Israel in the tabernacle and all of these patterns were earthly patterns of heavenly things. And you can look at the camp of Israel, the way they camped around the tabernacle. I find it very interesting. In Numbers chapter 2 and 3, there were four sides of the tabernacle, so three tribes encamped on each side. And what's interesting is that on the west side of the tabernacle, the center tribe was the tribe of Ephraim. On the north side, the center tribe in that arrangement was the tribe of Dan. On the southern side, the central tribe of the three was the tribe of Reuben. And on the east side, the, 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 the central tribe, who do you think that was? The eastern side of the tabernacle. The tribe of Judah. Now, Hebrew tradition, the Bible says there in Numbers that each tribe had a standard or a banner with its insignia upon it. The Bible doesn't describe what those insignias were. But Jewish tradition says that Ephraim's insignia was an ox, Daniel, Dan's was an eagle, Reuben's was a man, 
and Judas was obviously a lion. And so you have what John describes on the faces of these creatures represented in the way Israel guarded the tabernacle. Very interesting how the earthly patterns point to heavenly things. In fact, you can actually look here as the throne room of heaven is described in Revelation 4 and 5 and see that it is the heavenly reality uh, that's patterned for us in the tabernacle. The, just Even the very arrangement of the furniture shows the relationship there. I'm going to conclude with this. I wanted to get into a little bit of a discussion about other heavenly beings that are mentioned in Scripture, and I think there's a place for that. So we'll get there next week. But I want to leave you with something to think about. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. When we think of Satan, the dragon... We think of Satan or Lucifer as an angel in the sense that Gabriel or Michael were archangels. Here in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is describing and, and, and lifting up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus who is a type of Satan. It, then he begins to describe Satan and his fall. It says here, in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Obviously, the literal king of Tyrus wasn't there, so this is going into something deeper. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, or the sardine, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, the gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Look, verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Not an angel, a cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. What are the stones of fire? I'll share next week. I believe these are the seraphim. Seraphim means burning ones. Satan had access to the throne of God, the mountain of God. He walked amongst the seraphim. He was an anointed cherub. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I believe Satan was one of the cherubim. I believe he was an anointed cherub. In power and beauty, perhaps even greater than the cherubim that are described in Ezekiel 1 and 10 in Romans, I mean in Revelation chapter 4. That makes sense because Satan in his fallen state isn't described as an angel unless it's in a deceptive approach. Satan is called an angel of light in his deception. But in reality, in his work, in his existence, he's described not as a beast, a zoon, a living creature, but as a fieron, a wild, untamed beast, a dragon. When he uh, uh, possesses Antichrist. Antichrist is the beast, a wild, untamed beast, something very unlike 
what John sees in heaven. So Satan, in a sense, is not an angel like we see other messengers of God, like um, Michael or Gabriel, I don't believe. I believe he was an anointed cherub. And the cherubim are something different than angels according to chapter 5 of Revelation because it's the angels and the beast and the elders that give praise. So just an interesting thing to think about. Satan is described in Ezekiel 28 in his position as a cherub as, as having tabrets and pipes. These things seem to connote something to do with worship. Perhaps music. And we see these beasts around the throne singing worship to God. Maybe that's why Satan in his fallen state has such power when it comes to things like music. Maybe that had something to do with his role in, in heaven. I don't know. Maybe Satan was the mountain of God. Maybe Satan was anointed in that he was given rule of this planet as it was originally created sometime before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I don't know. Jeremiah chapter 4 seems to describe an earthly civilization that predates God's recreation in Genesis chapter 1-2. It talks about the earth being without form and void and cities were wasted and there was no man. I don't know if Satan was the king of some pre-Adamite heavenly civilization and fell, whether he actually was in the throne of God just like what John describes. We don't know the answer to those questions. But it's obvious that Satan was a cherub. And in his fall from heaven, he went from a living creature to a wild, untamed thing. And yet he comes as an angel of light to deceive those. And his ministers are deceptive. And that's his power. He deceived Adam, we'll see, into giving up the title deed of the earth, into giving up his birthright, just like Jacob deceived Esau into doing the same. And he has some kind of grip on this earth and some kind of desire to have it that's almost unreal. And maybe it's linked to the position he had prior to God when he said, let us replenish the earth there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Anyway, I'll end with that. Next week we'll go on. I want to talk a little bit about some other heavenly or supernatural beings mentioned in Scripture. We have angels. We have the seraphim. We have archangels, fallen angels, and demons. And so I think it's interesting we need to introduce those because we're going to see more of these type things in the book. And then we can briefly talk about verse 11 and get into chapter 5. Does anybody have any questions? I didn't finish. I, I keep promising you guys I'm going to do a whole chapter in a day. And today would not have been that promise because we already did verse 1. But I'm really thinking when we get up like... 17, 18, we probably can do a whole chapter in a day. Hold me to it. Alright, let's, let's pray in, in, uh, over the meal and we can, we can fellowship. Thank You, Lord, for this Word. Thank You that everything You do, whether it be creation, Lord, whether it be judgment, whether it be redemption, it's beautiful. All things are beautiful in what You do. Lord, we long for that day when we can stand in that throne room, Lord, represented by those elders, Lord, and we can see those living creatures, and we can all join together with a host of angels and cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Thank You that one day for us, Lord, this life of trial and tribulation will be over. Lord, the storm will be over as indicated by the bow and the cloud. And we look forward to the day we can behold that 
full bow around your throne and see things in their entirety and not through the limited finiteness of sinful flesh. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ and his redemption. We long for his coming. Help us to be faithful stewards who await the coming of the bridegroom. Bless our food and our time of fellowship today. Be with those who are not amongst us and those who are poor and suffering around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.